know, lying there, tossing and turning, getting really anxious about the next day, thinking we're not going to be able to function properly, thinking we're going to make mistakes, thinking we're going to die early. Uh, once I'd shut that voice off and, and got up out of my bed, my nights changed and my subsequent days changed as well. Hi, and welcome to the All Too Well podcast. I'm your host, Erica Huss. I'm a wellness entrepreneur, a wellness expert, and your wellness whisperer here to make your journey towards better health just a little more comfortable and a little less cringy. And I am thrilled to share the conversation I had with Annabelle Abs Streets, who is an author. And this book that she has written is literally for anybody who has ever suffered from insomnia and then worse, not only the insomnia, but the self-loathing and self-flagellation that comes with insomnia. Her book is called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. And it really is a fascinating, just deep dive into the world of both what happens from a, from a physiological standpoint, medical all of the biological components of insomnia, as well as a kind of a great historical overview of the generations of primarily women, but creative types who have actually used their insomnia to help them and to kind of unlock these different levels of, it's, she refers to it as the night self, and it, it truly is kind of a different persona. Um, so, you know, I, personally, this is something that really hits close to home because insomnia has plagued me for most of my adult life. And if I'm being honest, probably going back to when I'm a kid, I was just never a great sleeper. And for many, many years, not only was the sleeplessness the issue, but also just the the guilt and the upset about the fact that I was not sleeping, let alone, you know, what was keeping me up in the first place. And we get into all that. Uh, it's really, it's just actually very comforting and um, inspiring to hear the the work that she has done and, and what she has discovered in, in terms of this night self and how it's actually all about giving ourselves permission to allow it to kind of come into our world when we, when we need it to. Hers was triggered out of some severe trauma and grief and loss, um, but it is not necessarily something that extreme for many of us. So anyway, here is my chat with Annabelle Abs Streets. And just one more quick note before we dive in. Guys, you know that this is an ad-free podcast and I will endeavor to always make it ad-free so that you don't have to listen to me or someone else droning on about something that you may or may not be interested in purchasing. However, this podcast is really supported and sustained by your support and the best way to show your support is to throw me some stars. It's literally as simple as going into your podcast platform, whatever it is, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or one of the others, and scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page and literally just use your thumb one time to hit the number of stars that you think I deserve. And let's hope it's five. Uh, that's all. Thanks. Well, I'm going to record now so I can make sure that that little tidbit is uh, immortalized. <laughs> Um, well, welcome Annabelle Abstreet. It is so, so nice to meet you and such a pleasure to be able to dig into this conversation with you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about it with you. And I would just like to point out to listeners that right before we started recording, Annabelle said that she has listened to a few of my podcasts and she enjoys the sound of my voice and it lulls her to sleep. And for someone who wrote a book called Sleepless, I think that's a huge compliment. 
Um, so let's talk about this book and the experience that brought you to writing it because it is incredibly powerful uh, as somebody who has suffered far from insomnia and all manner of sleep issues for a long time and have kind of made it my life's work and passion to to dig into this topic and examine it from so many different sides. This was certainly a very different approach to the whole world of, you know, sleep hygiene and insomnia and everything we've learned and know. And the book goes very, very deep in history and research. So just if you can share the overview so that we can then dive deep, that would be great. Yes. And um, well, I, I was actually, I was actually commissioned to write the book about four years ago. And I had uh, sold the idea to my editor because I'd had insomnia for about about 20 years at that stage. Ever since the birth of my first child, I just had um, suffered with with broken broken sleep, you know, night after night. And I thought I'd write a funny little book that would uh, cheer everyone up. And it was going to be full of little anecdotes about what women had done in the past when they couldn't sleep, you know, pre-sleeping pill. You know, how did they cope? Uh, so I was sort of researching all these women of the past, reading lots of letters and journals to try and find out what what they had done. Because, you know, women women have never, I sort of knew that women had never really slept very well. They had always been the primary carers. They often had 10, 12, 15 children. Uh, there were no hospitals and it fell upon women to care for the community, for all the elderly people that, you know, so they'd always been up all night. And I just wanted to know a bit more about, you know, how how did they cope with their days? And uh, and then I went through a, a, a devastating series of bereavements. There were, I write about three in the book, but there was actually a fourth as well. But that was just two, four was too many. So but the, these four bereavements took place in the first year at the end of the first year of the pandemic and um my my insomnia after that one of them was my father one was my stepfather uh, and the other one I write about was a, a puppy that I went and got to try and help us to help us sort of overcome the the, the grief we were all feeling um but my insomnia then just sort of ratcheted up several notches uh, and my sort of coping mechanism in terms of sort of trying to look after everyone was to just be really, really busy during the days. And so I organised, you know, all the funerals, did the eulogies, sorted out all the administration, all the paperwork, looked after my mother and my stepmother, who were both in, you know, both isolated and in lockdown, bereaved and not able to see anyone. So, okay. so and I've got four children. And, and the fourth death, tragically, was a, a suicide. My, my friend's, uh, my son, my son's friend. So, so all of this, we were all just... Um, we were all just distraught, really. So, so I thought, okay, I've got to keep everything together. I've got to keep the show on the road. So, I didn't really have time to grieve during the day, uh, and at night, I suddenly discovered that that was my place, and I decided I didn't want to sleep. I wanted, I needed to be awake. I needed to try and, uh, you know, answer all the questions that sort of <laughs> fly through our heads when we suffer so much bereavement in one go. Uh, and I, I needed that. I needed to be awake. I was very conscious of the fact that my body and my brain were telling me this was not this was not a time for sleeping. This was a time for uh, grieving, and uh, when the grieving passed, for reflecting. So meanwhile, I sort of I sort of was also trying to work on this book, and I already had this whole dossier of extraordinary women who hadn't slept, and 
and who many of whom had lived, you know, long and perfectly happy lives without all of the things that we now think we're going to suffer if we don't sleep. You know, without dementia and obesity and type two diabetes and heart disease, all of these things that are now we are told frequently are, are you know, just really, really clearly linked to not getting enough sleep. And I and and this just wasn't stacking up in my head. You know, why hadn't why had these women? Um, why, why had they not all succumbed to dementia and heart disease and, and, and obesity and type 2 diabetes? And, and how had they done it? And the other thing that struck me was that uh, the work they produced during the day was very different from the work they produced during the night. Hmm. So some of the women I looked at were you know, insomniac just for a short period of time. They might have you know, two or three years of being insomniac, or sometimes it was even shorter, just short periods. But during that time, they produced work that was really, really different to the work they produced during the day. So, so all of this is just milling around in my head. And at that stage, I started to delve into the science. And I've been blogging about, I've been blogging about your know, health for, well, it's nearly 10 years this year. So it would have been, what, seven, six or seven years by then. And regularly writing about how important sleep was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but perhaps not going into the research, perhaps not going in as deeply as I then started to do, and a number a number of reports then sort of appeared in my inbox, suggesting a more nuanced approach to sleep, mm. suggesting that perhaps a lot of the sleep studies, you know, hadn't been carried out in a way that factored in all of their other other things going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. So when you dug into the data, you could quick quite quickly strip out. All sorts of things that meant actually it wasn't just the sleep, the lack of sleep that was leading to the obesity and the type 2 diabetes. It was the fact that perhaps if they were up at night, they were eating all night. So, mm. you know, it, these things are often much more complicated than the headline suggests. So I stopped just looking at the headline and started sort of digging right in. And also a, another report fell onto, my, fell onto my desk called The Mind After Midnight, which was really about how the mind changes uh, when darkness when darkness falls, so I was starting to understand that the, the the brain and the body are you know inextricably bound up with light and dark, uh, not not just sleep and wake, but actually actually the coming of the dark changes us. It changes us biologically, but it also seems to change us neurochemically. Mm. So at that stage, I started reaching out to a lot of those researchers and, and talking to them, and, and slowly I was sort of building up a picture that. Uh, was a little bit more complicated than I had previously thought. I spoke to uh, a really interesting researcher at Cambridge University over over here who is looking at uh, female sleep, and has his what he's found is that women are more resilient. We have a resilience that our, our male counterparts don't have, which he said is a, a sort of an evolutionary adaptation. I mean, as he said to me, you know, if if women couldn't cope with broken nights, if broken nights meant, you know, increased mortality, the human race would have ended. Right, right. So the the fact that we can have a baby after baby and nurse them through the nights and then carry on uh, looking after our elderly parents or the aunt and uncle next door suggests that we do have some sort of resilience. And this is now actually being borne out by several studies. But the, the important thing about that, I think, is it just gave me permission to go with my sleepless nights. Mm-hmm. Before that, I probably, if I hadn't known this, I probably would have just gone to my my doctor and and said, right, I need sleeping pills. Um, but because of this sort of uh, 
you know, mounting evidence that there was another way. And because my body and brain seemed to be wanting the darkness so badly, I thought, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to have a go at doing all the things these, you know, generations of women have done. I mean, I'd have four kids. So I'd already done, <laughs> already done that, that sort of, you know, <laughs> night nursing, night, uh, getting up at the night over and over again. So I'd, I'd done that. But I wanted to try the some of the things that women were doing that seemed to make them more creative and seemed to open up parts of their brain, different parts of their brain. So I then embarked on, you know, doing 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 what Louise Bourgeois had done when she couldn't sleep. She drew doing what many writers had done when they didn't sleep, which was, you know, writing. Um, uh, I, I follow, I follow, you know, women who had surveyed glowworms and gone out after moths and, and, and all, and whole legions of women who had spent their nights stargazing. So I went and learned astronomy on a course and then, you know, spent my nights looking up at the stars and, and trying to understand the constellations and the phases of the moon. And, and all of these, all of these different night activities, because they are things that you can't do during the day, mm. were very, very, um powerful and uh oh they, they showed me a, a version of night a sort of night that i'd never seen before uh before night had been you know a frightening place uh it was certainly not a place that i wanted to be outside on my own <laughs> and these women and their experiences showed me that night could be completely different mm. um and that night is a you know a very spiritual time uh that there's a whole world of of extraordinary things you know nocturnal migrations birds flying overhead these insects that we often don't see during the day um you know extraordinary meteor showers and comets and all sorts of things so so i sort of embraced the night and found that i also was quite different i just i just thought differently once once i think the key was for me once i had you know shut that fearful voice off and i think the ruminative fearful voice is probably the, the night self that most of us are familiar with, you know, lying there, tossing and turning, getting really anxious about the next day, thinking we're not going to be able to function properly, thinking we're going to mm -hmm. make mistakes, thinking we're going to die early. Uh, once I'd shut that voice off and, and got up out of my bed, my nights changed and my subsequent days changed as well. They they weren't as fatigued Um you know, I compare it when people, quite a lot of people say, well, weren't you just really tired? And, and I, and I, I, and what I say to everyone is, well, do you know those nights when you've been to a really good party and you get home and you go to sleep, you go to bed late and you're a bit wired. So you wake up a bit early and you haven't had enough sleep, but the next day you're slight, maybe you're slightly weary, but you're also, you're also sort of buzzing. Mm -hmm. It's a very different fatigue from the tiredness that strikes when you have been, uh, you know, awake all night and just berating yourself mm -hmm. and you know those stressful thoughts going round and round so I sort of came to the conclusion that in some ways it's the stress of not sleeping that makes us so exhausted the next the next day rather than the not sleeping although of course you know in an ideal world we'd all be sleeping wonderfully but I do think there are probably periods well. of time when we just can't Yes, I think that's right. In an ideal world, we would all be sleeping peacefully. However, as you've just illustrated and what the book illustrates and what the experience of so many of the women that you researched for this book is that if we were sleeping peacefully all the time, then there wouldn't actually be this opportunity for, like you just said, discovery of 
a different part of the world, discovery of a different part of ourselves. Uh, I found it really fascinating that you went into the the science of how chemically we actually do change. And I mean, that itself has, you know, there's so many offshoot questions and, and ramifications of thinking about that because you think about shift workers or people who don't have the same nocturnal and circadian rhythm schedule that most of us do. And I want, I want to get into that in a little bit, but just going back to what you were saying, like, and I also find it fascinating that, I mean, I don't want to say serendipitous or fortuitous because that puts too much of a positive spin on a very, very difficult, obviously incredibly traumatic phase for you going through back-to-back loss and bereavement. But it is kind of fascinating that the timing was such that you were already working on a book that had to do with this experience of so many notable women in history who suffered from loss of sleep at some point. And then you yourself, having already been an insomniac, so having been familiar enough with what that experience is, but then having it triggered so terribly by these losses, but then it kind of catapulted you into this exploration. I mean, it's, I I don't like to look for silver linings on every cloud because sometimes a cloud is just a cloud and it's a very difficult thing to process. But I have to imagine that on some level that probably contributed to what you were just describing as that buzz, like maybe at least it gave a, a sense of meaning and purpose to the work that you were doing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, um, the thing about when you're grieving and these deaths were all very, very sudden and unexpected. So it wasn't like a long drawn out series of, of, you know, awful cancers, but where you do have a bit of time to adjust to the, perhaps slightly to, to adjust slightly to the loss that's coming your way when they're really completely out of the blue, you're in a state of shock where you, you desperately need to 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 believe to believe that those those people are somehow still with you you need because you don't have you haven't had the time to sort of climatize so you need to find a place where you can be open to thoughts that uh during the day and unless you're religious and I'm not religious so that was a slight handicap because my I have a very you know very rational brain which during the day would say no, of course, all these people, you know, of course, they've, they've just died. And of course, they're not with you. <laughs> of course, you can't hear them or smell them. You know, all of this, all of these things that I sort of also needed to mm. believe, mm-hmm. at least for a period of time, I needed to have that sense that I could push through to another to, to the world where they all were, and which sound I know that sounds quite um, so slightly um, woo woo. I'm here I for it. Think, I think it's part of the human experience, isn't it? Yes. That at stages of our lives, we we need we need to have a more spiritual space we can go to. And uh, you know, I, I do envy people who who have a have faith because perhaps they can move into that space quite quickly. Mm. But but I can't because I have this very uh, you know rational brain saying you know it doesn't work like that. But at night, the rational brain goes into partial hibernation, the the prefrontal cortex, which is the most sort of highly evolved part of our brain. And it's the the bit, uh, there are three bits to it, but I'll just use the one 
I just generally refer to it as a prefrontal cortex. Uh, and it, it's very it's very good at, you know, all the things actually that women are particularly good at as well. Yeah, it's very good at making lists and weighing up <laughs> risk versus reward and, you know, working out if I do this, that will happen. So therefore I must do this, you know, thinking ahead, planning. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's that very rational brain isn't terribly helpful when you're grieving because mm. part of you needs something that is, uh, more mysterious, more open to suggestion, more irrational, really. You yeah. just need, to, I needed to believe uh, that that these people were somehow still with me. And and night, let me, let me do that without, say, without that voice saying, don't be so ridiculous, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was very appreciative of that. And, and, and then, you know, that took me down two routes. It, it took me down, first of all, the route of looking into the whole prefrontal cortex which I found quite fascinatingly is more is larger and more active in women anyway. And I think that probably makes sense from an evolutionary point of view and from a cultural point of view. You know, that's part of the, our brain also that you know, keeps our emotions in check. It tells us to behave, shows us how to be sensible. And, and perhaps, you know, going back millennia as, as women who would have been responsible for small children, that bit of the brain needed to be really um, you know, really on the ball, really switched on. But at night, when it um, apparently uh, shuts down, partially shuts down because it needs to rest and repair for the next day, um, then other pathways in the brain open up. And so I started thinking, well, you know, if 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 in women that bit of the brain is more sort of more rigorous, more rigorous during the day, then just think about what that means at night when it suddenly slips away and we can we can silence that inner critic you know that that little voice that's always saying you know you can't do that you're no good at that which again it's a prefrontal cortex you know keeping us in keeping us in our straight and narrow furrow um so so that was one of the paths i pursued and um and then i did i could do quite a lot of work looking at things like um uh dmt dimethyl yeah, to ask about that which is another really fascinating uh, and and barely understood biochemical that we we produce endogenously we produce it ourselves uh, in quite small quantities although interestingly you know interestingly sort of pregnant women produce more of it mm. it's really very really hard to unpick scientists have found it very hard to uh, investigate because it's it, it only lasts for a very short time so it seems to come in these little bursts uh, and within 20 minutes it's gone so yeah. the researchers I spoke to said you know it's just very very hard to uh, to do you know really solid research into it, but they seem to think that it also has a circadian pattern, that it comes with the darkness, and that it's part of the dreaming process. Yeah, it was so, well. You described it as, uh, or it was described, I guess, for you in a study that you read as dreaming with your eyes open. Dreaming with your I eyes found. open. So I've done a little bit of. I've done a little bit of psychedelic therapy work um, with, you know, for myself over the yeah. last couple of years. And DMT was one of the tools that I used. Oh, and I learned a bit about it um, from the guide that I was working with. But there's, as you know, like there is so much to understand. I don't have a particularly science geared brain. So it's harder for me to kind of grasp a lot of these things having to do with complex chains and things like that. But it is something that I was aware that we produce it naturally. And then in this setting, I was instructed to, you know, I had to smoke it 
uh, with my guide and be on that journey, which exactly as you just described, lasts about 15 to 20 minutes, but the most potent moment of it really is only maybe 30 seconds, but you yeah. lose all concept of time and space. And you, you're very aware that you're sitting in a room with somebody who's helping you through this. It's not like you just leave your body mm. completely. But when I read that dreaming with your eyes open, I was like, oh, that's such an incredibly profound way to describe it. And so accurate. Um, but what actually is, because I don't understand, I understand more about using it as a, as a tool externally than yeah. I do about the internal mechanism of it. Like what, I know you spent a lot of time digging into this, like what is actually happening or, or how do we, how do we use it? Why do we have it? No, nobody knows. All animals also produce it. So, uh, we're all, uh, so the the researchers I spoke to think it's really there as a means of uh, REM REM sleep dream when we dream. So they think it's it's linked to that and it helps us. So if, so if you if you buy the argument that uh, you know Matthew Walker and other sleep scientists have made about REM sleep, which is that the REM sleep the dreams are a sort of emotional recovery. That's where we work out our emotional issues and, um, you know, we sort of put things together uh, happening at a very, very deep unconscious level. Then um, then then you would say, OK, so the so the so DMT is made by the body to help us with that emotional rest, the emotional restitution that's going on during REM sleep, mm -hmm. during dreaming. And so that's. That's one argument, but mm -hmm. that seems to be as far as they've got. They they don't know, and there's just so many. The papers were very very chaotic and conflicted, and I spent oh my god months reading these papers. Yeah, <laughs> and at the end, that was all I I came up with. But I I, I did find that interesting when I then looked at things like uh, or people I should say like the monks and nuns, who uh, well for you know hundreds and hundreds of years following the canonical hours of the Catholic Church would uh you know rise and pray every three hours they were praying but their most important and and most sort of um spiritually profound prayer session was the 3 a.m one mm. and when you talk to when you talk to a lot of people who can't sleep they will always say god i always wake up at 3 a.m yeah and i don't know if if there's something to do with that um that spiritual sense that uh, sense that you are closer to god and the DMT chemical in your brain, you know, whether that's all just coming together and tied to the darkness and that, you know, hour of, some people call it the hour of God, some call it the hour of the wolf, whatever you want to call it. Right. But that, that yeah, the deepest part of the night, whether somehow it's all bound up and possibly was a way of, you know, I just, I always like to think back to, you know, how we were thousands of years ago in our cave, uh, you know, with possible predators and wolves and uh, bears and tigers and whatever, uh, and whether whether somehow the DMT kept us kept us asleep so that we could have that really necessary dreaming stage. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just me. <laughs> this is just no, me. no. I like this theory. I like this theory. And because we had to try and work out, you know, why why is this happening to us? Why is the body producing that? Yeah. But what I what I found was that I, although I didn't sleep very much, I often would have these um you know the, the hypnagogic hallucinations which i think are probably dmd because i don't know where where did they come from 
this just when you have a very it's like a still from a film and it just would come from nowhere so this is when you're sort of floating around in that borderland between sleep and wake and you're not asleep and you're not awake and then these strange images come to you uh, and they just drop into your head uh like a like a cinematic very cinematic very colorful still and then it just goes you know it's there for a couple of seconds and it goes and you know i I, w- I would like to be able to say to you, Erica, that I could read into each of these images. They meant something. I could read something, but I never could. Yeah. And they came from, I don't know where they came from. Or I don't know what they meant. I couldn't decipher them. <laughs> it's interesting to think that, you know, the, you, the brain or the subconscious can manufacture these, these, these images that we've never actually seen in our waking life. And to your point, you can't make sense of them. You don't know where they came from or what they mean. But I would like to believe that at some point they do make sense. They fit into an equation later that remains to be seen. And whether we don't, whether we see it in our waking life and our consciousness, or it happens at some other point in our life and our journey, then, you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of an interesting, just, I don't know. There's something that I find comforting. Like it will make sense at some point. You just have to be I think unattached. you're right. It's sort of like you suddenly become aware of a sort of parallel universe that's just happening yeah. and you're just getting a little glimpse of it. And then you're, you know, then you come out of it and then you go back in and have another little yeah. glimpse. And yeah. Yeah. But it, I well, did find them very, very comforting. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Because, well, and it, because it came from in you. Um, so you talk a lot in the book about the, this, I mean, what, what I love about where you're going with all of this, the bigger picture to me is it's not, I mean, it's bad enough that so many of us have this very uh, compulsive um, attachment to making sure that, you know, we're sleeping enough and we're eating correctly. I mean, and I'm just as guilty as, as the next person who, like, the more you read, the more information you gather, the more it's hard to unlearn this stuff. And I certainly have, I've been guilty of, you know, that middle of the night experience of, all I'm thinking about is the fact that I'm not sleeping. I have stopped even thinking about the thing that woke me up that I'm worrying about. And now I'm only focused on the fact that I'm not sleeping and this is going to be so much worse and this is going to have X, Y, Z ramifications and you're just off like a freight train. And so I love that this is really about the idea of giving yourself that permission to just have to surrender to the, you know, to the night at some point and, maybe that doesn't help you sleep, but at least it, it helps you stop fighting so hard. Cause I think that's a big part of the insomnia experience is that you're fighting with yourself and you're fighting against the forces that are keeping you awake. And granted, I will say, I mean, the way that you wrote about it, like you were awake for many, 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 many nights. And I don't know that you're here advocating that somebody try to actually keep themselves up in the middle of the night for months on end. <laughs> No, I'm definitely, definitely not. I would never say to someone, oh, yeah, set your alarm, wake up in the middle of the night. No, right. no, no. <laughs> but it's that idea of harnessing it differently, even just to see what you learn. Um, I mean, there is this new, or not new, but we've heard only you know recently uh, this concept of sleep segmenting, which I guess is a name for what it is that you've already described and, and researched, which is that some people are maybe just chemically programmed to need four hours at the beginning of the night, need two hours in the middle of the night where they can be up and creative and use a different part of their brain. And then maybe go back to ideally go back to sleep so that they're still getting all in that eight hours or so. Um, I mean, is that, I don't know that that idea is like widely embraced by every 
sleep scientist or researcher, but that sounds like something that you certainly have experienced and understand that it's got value to it. And even in that, maybe that's helpful for people to, again, just sort of surrender and give themselves a little bit of permission to be okay with it. Yeah, I did. I did find that um, when I you know, got up, got out of the bed and went to another room and whether I was going out for a walk or, you know, just lighting a candle and writing, I found that I would often go back to bed and go back to sleep. In fact, quite often, if I went out for a little walk, I'd, I'd go out for a walk and I'd maybe walk for half an hour and I'd literally just go back and go straight to sleep. Whereas before, when I was just, you know, tossing and turning and in a panic, I would often then just be awake, yeah. you awake for the rest of the night. Um, so, so I think that, I think that, well, there were two things. I think, first of all, giving yourself permission to use that, that part of the night to do something just, just for you. You know, there was no, there was no need to go and, you know, I was certainly wasn't clearing emails or unstacking dishwashers or anything like that. It was, it was time that I, I really saw as my time. Uh, and then the second thing was just becoming familiar with the darkness took away a whole level of fear as well. So I sort of lost the fear of being awake uh, and the stress of, of that. And I lost the fear of being in the dark, uh, which meant that uh, I think I, I started to actually have much more darkness at night. Whereas before, especially, you know, when the children were small, there were always little lights on everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even now there are, you know, there were little blue Wi-Fi. There's just little lights everywhere, aren't there, when you walk around the house in the dark. So I sort of, I taped over everything and I went yeah. into sort of cave mode and started to feel much more comfortable with the darkness, both in the house and darkness outside. And I think that just stripped away another level, another another layer, sorry, another layer of fear that I probably hadn't even been aware of when I was lying mm-hmm. awake at night. Uh, and and so, so a lot of the fear of, of, both night and sleeplessness just went. And when the fear of something goes, um, you know, every, everything changes. Yeah. Because fear is such an incredibly uh, detrimental emotion. Uh, it just, I mean, it just, eats, it just eats you up. And whether that's something as, as pathetic as you're being frightened of <laughs> the dark or being frightened of being outside in the dark or being frightened that you're going to, you know, you know, die of a heart attack because you haven't slept. That that fear is, um, you know, just, just we don't need it, do we? we? We've got enough going on. We don't need that extra fear. Yeah. But with that there's, gone, life was easier. There's nothing you can actually do with the fear. I mean, fear, I think fear is certainly a helpful emotion and experience when it has its place. And usually it has to do with, you know, being saving your life, running from a predator of some sort. But to your point that it is more of an irrational fear, we're grown ass adults. Like there's nothing scary in a dark room unless, you know, obviously unless there's actually something scary there, there's nothing that should be really scary about being in a dark room. But um, yeah, it's it's true. It's not a productive energy fear. Um, So removing that, I imagine, is probably can be very soothing. You really did. You used what was your most, I don't know, surprising or preferred activity that you ended up doing through all of this, because you said, you know, you were painting and you were writing and you were stargazing and you were experimenting with all of these different activities that historically have been used in the middle of the night for people to find their inspiration and their creativity. What for you was the most meaningful and the most profound and the most enjoyable? 
Oh, without a doubt, it was a discovering the night sky, mm. which um, I I don't know where I, I don't know where I'd been for the last few decades, but I obviously hadn't been looking up at night. I think, like most people, I was sort of safely tucked up inside, you know, watching some Netflix or <laughs> whatever. Right. Um, but not not out and not looking up and not in a place with stars. But I did find myself in a place with awake obviously and in a place with amazing night sky so I started as I write in the book I started to uh, sleep outside which I didn't mean to I just one night thought oh I'm going to take this mattress outside and I'll just lie and look at the stars and um as I lay there and looked up and it was a clear night no clouds as I lay and looked up there I just sort of had this absolute epiphany and I just um I just felt so deeply relaxed it was the first time I'd felt truly relaxed for months and I and then I fell asleep you know stunningly I fell asleep at about sort of it was really early it was like half past eight in the evening or something so there I was thinking I'll just I'll just look at the stars and practice my practice you know spotting my constellations Uh, and the next thing I was just I was fast asleep and then I woke up a few hours later and I thought oh gosh I'm outside (laughs) Oh, whoa, what am I doing out here? <laughs> and uh, and I sort of looked up and I looked at the stars and I just felt this incredible sense of peace and serenity. And it just seemed to drop from the, seemed to drop from the sky. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, how, how can, how can, how can I just be looking up and just feeling this really deep sense of calm? Yeah. And then I just drifted off back to sleep again. And then I, and then I woke up a couple of hours later and looked up at the stars and the same thing happened. So Whereas indoors, I had been, you know, waking up and tossing and turning and fretting and, you know, whatever, in my my pre-enlightened days. <laughs> this, look at this, having this sense of enormous space and this sense of, um, you know, this sort of world of astronomy going on ahead, over, over, you know, above me. And and the fact that they were changing, they, sh- they were shifting over the over the course of the night so I'd wake mm-hmm. up and one constellation that had been to my right was suddenly to my left and the moon that had been you know behind me was suddenly in front of me so um that was that was really powerful so then of course I looked into the I looked into the the some of the science of what you know what happens when we when we look up and see the constellations and what happens when we have that huge space and again there was quite a lot of science quite a lot of researchers had looked at um what they call the cathedral effect of being in these vast spaces and how that too that too makes us more creative and is very very calming and then since then actually since the book was written I've been in touch with more researchers and studies that have only just come out in the last couple of months where they have looked at the what they call celestial vaulting so looking at the stars ahead overhead and then monitored you know put people through brain scanners and monitored their blood pressure uh, and done and done much more robust studies than than when I was digging around, you know, a year ago and and longer. And it just it seems to be a thing mm-hmm. that when we when we look up, um, parts of our brain just settle down. Uh, the ruminatory voice turns off, and there's a sense of um. I think there's a sense of certainty and safety and predictability. Uh, that the brain really likes mm. but every night the stars are there but they're not always in the same place they've also got that little bit of intrigue and Mystery. interest that yeah. also our brain likes so we love the fact that oh there they are again but oh they've moved 
So there's something to distract us, but there's also this just this sense of permanence. Yeah. And the fact that the sky has been like that for, you know, <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and that we really are just tiny little you know, tiny little ants just passing through. Yeah. And and that's very, um, very comforting. Also, when you're, I think when you're grieving, it's particularly comforting that, you know, everything happened and, and in, a, in a way it sort of, it had to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, um, that sense of wonder can be very soothing to the brain and also probably unlocks some good chemicals, whether it's towards creativity or, or progress on some level. But I think that that is a little piece of wisdom that I've heard and read in other places is trying to inspire a sense of wonder in yourself or in someone else can be very, very helpful, uh, I guess, in a dopamine response, which again, mm. all of these things are connected, right? And so if you have yeah. that release of good, good, you know, hormones and good chemicals, that in turn helps to kind of calm you down and soothe you. Um, which I love. And I mean, we should all have the opportunity to sleep outside at some point and sleep under the stars. Mm -hmm. And certainly those of us in big cities, it's not a safe or a good idea and you can't actually see them. Um, so you have to, you have to find a way to take yourself to a a place that doesn't have that many light, that that much city light around it, just to be able to have that experience even just once. Yes. Yes. And it did make me realize how, how, how most people never have that experience and anyone who's grown up in a city, you know, they, they, probably never seen a constellation that's right um, and that you know and, and how much I started, you know, started thinking how much does that loss affect us at a level that we can't articulate um you know these are, yeah. these are really complicated questions because if you've never seen them how can it how can it affect you not seeing them because you've never known them but actually I think somewhere inside us we need we need them and part of us is as you know, crying out for them because it was yeah. really only our grandparents. It's only it's only two generations back. So my grandparents didn't have uh, electric lights yeah. until the 1950s. That's less than a hundred years ago. So yeah. the what's you know, the speed with which we've moved from dark skies with stars um, to to the cities we live in now is very very fast. And I don't think the human body and brain has had time to adjust to that yeah so part of us is probably missing that without knowing if that makes sense without knowing what we're missing sure of course maybe that's the reason (laughs) just maybe that's why have you ever been to grand central station in new york the train station yeah Yeah. so if you look up in the atrium like there's the constellation all throughout the ceiling maybe that's why it's there is because people who are in the city otherwise don't have an opportunity to see it (laughs) yeah maybe maybe um, so I want to ask you specifically about this this circadian science because uh, it is so pervasive in everything we read in wellness news having to do with sleep hygiene and all of that. Morning light is so important. Uh, you know, timing your your system to rise and set with the sun is so important. And also, this reminds me: I don't, have you been watching? Are you uh, up to date with um, True Detective on HBO? The new season. So the new season of True Detective, it just started. It's called Night Country. And it takes place in a town called Ennis, Alaska, where in December every year, there are eight days of night. 
like pure night, the sun never comes up. And the whole time I'm watching this show, it's very disturbing. It's very, very just dark and twisted, but it's so good and so gripping and I can't stop watching it, but I have to not watch it before I go to bed because it gives me nightmares. <laughs> Um, and the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, not only does it look so miserable because it's so cold and icy and I don't, I'm not good with cold weather for that long anyway, but it takes place over the course of these eight days where there's no sun. And the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, these people must have the worst life. They don't sleep. Like they, they go to sleep in artificial light. They wake up. It's artificial light. Cause it's black outside. It goes against everything we've been taught and here you are doing these experiments and having these experiences that also now go against everything that we've been learning about what is good sleep hygiene. So what are you seeing that suggests that maybe it's not all about, it's not that kind of binary that it's circadian is only good and never not necessary? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I'm a big fan of my own circadian rhythms, which I'm very respectful of, <laughs> Um, but it does seem that the there are, so duration, how long we sleep seems to be less important than uh, regularity. So so it appears that people who, for example, go to bed at midnight and get up at six. So let's say they're getting six hours, not the recommended seven to eight. Um, they but but because of the regularity, so they always stick to those hours. They have better health than people who are getting more sleep, but where the sleep is all over the place. So there seems to be something very powerful about keeping really regular hours. Uh, and that seems to be more important than getting seven or eight hours, okay. if that makes sense. So that's the first thing that seems to be coming out loud and clear. Um, although again, you know, with, with a sleep science, with this whole sleep industry, you just have to be a little bit careful because it's now so, it's it's worth so much money. Yes. And so many, or well, several, well, quite a lot of the researchers are also tied into, you know, comp companies, commercial interests. So you just have to be a little bit careful when you pick through the reports. But certainly, um, regularity is more important than duration. Knowing your chronotype also seems to be more important than just that everyone must go to bed at 10 and everyone must have eight hours sleep. So if you're a night owl and you are pushed into the rhythm of a lark, that is much more detrimental to your health. So there is a place for so there's a place for shift workers, but generally shift workers should be the people who are comfortable on that night owl schedule. Mm -hmm. Schedule. I'll say it the American way. I got it. Um, so knowing <laughs> so knowing your chronotype and working with it rather than trying to force yourself into another one. So I'm, I'm actually a log. As in, I like to get up. I like to get up early. Me too. I like to go to bed early, but I also obviously have this ridiculously long period of time awake in the night and that also that that um you know that biphasic style of sleeping has been going on for um you know thousands of years and in fact i spoke to several anthropologists and, and one who had lived out in the amazon and he lived with a uh, a community about a 50 strong community and he lived with them for 12 years and they all he was he was telling me how they you know how they all sleep communally they all sleep into this big tent around a fire uh, the thought of you know, someone just sleeping on their own like we do, you know, in a little locked up house, you know, they, he said they just couldn't understand that. That was oh. horrific. But he said whenever, so he slept like that too. He said that whenever he woke up, you know, whether that was 2 a.m., 4 a.m., midnight, whatever, he said there were always a group of people, different people at each hour, always a group of people sitting by the fire, just talking really gently, uh, softly, and, and you know, having a cup of tea or, or smoking or whatever. So he said he got used to 
you got used to sleeping with just this sound of the human voice mm. always. And it was you know, different human voices because it wasn't one group sitting up all night. Uh, and he also realized that actually there were always people waking up in the middle of the night and doing that, doing that sort of two hour shift by the fire and just talking and catching up, which, of course, is how we now know from looking at old diaries that uh, people here in Europe used to sleep back in the uh, probably until about uh, 18th century the Industrial Revolution. It was quite normal. If you read Samuel Pepys's huge, great fat diaries, you know, he would often get up at 2 a.m. He records this in his diary. and He would go next door and visit his neighbor. <laughs> it was just it's like which we think is really strange. Yeah. You go next door and visit your neighbor at 2 a.m. So the idea of people being awake in the night for a couple of hours and using that time not to toss and turn and fret, but to talk or um, you find someone else to talk to or to write or whatever is, is also quite, is quite normal. So I, I suspect that um, perhaps for some of us, that's still more entrenched in our, in our DNA than for others. But there are a lot of people who wake up, particularly as we get older, and particularly post childbirth, a lot of women who, you know, the habit is just the habit has been triggered and they wake up and they will be awake for, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours. Um, and, and but most of us, because of the, the because of the data, because of all the, the people saying, you, you know, you, you're going to be you're going to be a wreck the next day. <laughs> you have to have your eight hours or you'll die, which we're fighting it. Yeah. Or we're going to the doctor and asking for sleeping pills. We we don't need sleeping pills and we certainly shouldn't be fighting it. Uh, I think that was sort of where I where I got to in the end. Um, yeah. No, I think it's a I think it's a very encouraging message, again, just to give permission and to try to remove some of that layer of stress for people, which I think is worse than the actual lack of sleep is the stress about it. Um, and to encourage, you know, like you said, I mean, if this is your actual chronotype, if you are designed to stay up later and sleep in, as opposed to somebody who's built like you or me, then you need to lean into that and embrace it and stop fighting what you're, I mean, it's hard because, you know, some, office hours and transportation and traffic patterns and bosses don't allow for us all to lean into that all the time, but to at least be aware of it and be mindful of it and figure out how you can work with it and leverage it in some way, as opposed to just becoming a complete victim and, and, and fighting yourself every step of the way, which I think is just depleting and exhausting. I also think actually that if you, if you do get up and do something creative uh, so, you know, Lee Krasner would paint and Louise Bourgeois would draw and many, many women would write. I think also whatever it is that's woken you up, and quite often it, we don't always know what it is, but it's quite, something's on our mind. Something's on our mind. Something's woken us up. And the, just the act then of of sort of expressing something with, through your writing or your or your drawing or or your, your composing, if you've got you could put your speakers on and compose music or or write your lyrics, whatever it is that woke you up, it's also sort of being a little bit purged or exercised. So I, quite often I would I write lyrics and poems during the night, which I would never do during the day because it's not my thing. But I do that at night, and and quite often something something is is released in that process mm -hmm. that means that then getting back to sleep as seems to be much much easier. Yeah. That's great. I love it. Um, well, we are wrapping up on timing, but is there any other point that you want to make sure we drive home? 
Um, no, I think we've covered everything. I suppose I would just say, I would also say that the answer, you know, we're constantly being encouraged now to buy, you know, to get a sleep tracker. I would say don't, no. don't track your sleep. No. When you are up in the night, just have a candle, I do, preferably a, a wax candle, and a non-polluting candle. Just have a candle. Don't turn the lights on. Don't open up your phone or your laptop. Use use old-fashioned pen and paper. That's very yeah. soothing as well. Just the hand on the paper, um, and 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 try and try it. Try it, and don't don't fret that you haven't got the perfect mattress and all the things we're supposed to have, because um, I don't I don't think usually the mattress or the pillow is the problem. Right. Um, so it's not going to be the solution to whatever the, the larger problem is for sure. I do like that idea of the candle though, because even if you're going to get up and, you know, go to another room or whatever, so many of us are using our phones as just as, as a light, even if you're not going to be on your phone, but even just that little bit of blue light can sometimes just be so disruptive. Um, and there's something very soothing, I think in itself about a candle. Um, so I like that. I like that suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this book, again, is fascinating. There's so much really incredible research that you've done and just your own experience with it is incredible and it's inspiring. And I'm I'm so impressed with how you were able to really just dive into this and, and find solutions for yourself. And you are sleeping better now. Is that right? Oh, much better. Yes. I'm, so, I'm, like, I'm like a new woman. <laughs> this book was really the, it came in the insomnia chapter of your life, it sounds like. And now you've been able to kind of go back to equilibrium a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I have actually. <laughs> but I also feel that, you know, I did, I did properly grieve. And I think if I, and, you know, looking back now, I think if I'd just gone and taken sleeping pills and just sort of, uh, you know, slept through that period, I'd, I think I would still be struggling with, with, sort of unexpressed grief. So it seemed it, it seemed to work on a, on a number of ways. It's amazing. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really good advice, again, for people to actually just allow these, these natural things that need to move through us, move through at their own pace and then just be gone. So good for you. Um, where can people find the book? Oh, they can find it in anywhere. Any yes, Good. anywhere, anyway, all the usual places. <laughs> Good. Look in all the beautiful in the usual the beautiful. Look in all the usual places for Sleepless, the book by Annabelle Abstreet. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to All Too Well, guys. And as always, I am accepting stars, reviews all of the above. They don't cost you anything and they mean a lot to me. So if you do have time, head on over to Apple Podcasts and throw me a few stars and, uh, you know, just do a good turn. Thanks. Thanks.